Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. Each person's journey is unique. Our goal is to connect survivors to resources along the way on their path to healing. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. We are here to help survivors get access to justice. Join us on this journey. Here is Support for Survivors. Hello, welcome to Support for Survivors. I'm your host, Shaughnessy Terrell. Joining us today are Brian Kent and Guy DeAndrea of Laffy Boosie Kent, a law firm in Philadelphia. Brian Kent is one of the founders of Laffy Boosie Kent and has 15 years of legal experience. Brian started out as a sex crimes prosecutor in Philly where he fought for rights of sexual assault victims. As a civil attorney, Brian has handled several high-profile cases both nationally and locally. Brian has been honored with several accolades reflecting his success and drive in working on behalf of victims. He also serves as a lecturer in the trial advocacy program at Drexel University School of Law. Guy D'Andrea also began his career serving as a prosecutor in Philadelphia. Guy litigated more than 100 trials, including high-profile cases such as the Philadelphia Craigslist killer and murderers who targeted transgender women. At Laffey Boosie Kent, Guy handles cases locally and nationally that involve sexual and physical assaults in institutional settings, including boarding schools, residential treatment facilities, hospitals, universities, sports organizations, and religious entities. Guy also serves as an adjunct professor of law at Drexel University School of Law. Brian and Guy, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. I'm really yeah, excited. Thank you. This is great. So we know each other. You know, we go to conferences and maybe have like a drink or two, things like that, all kinds of fun stuff. We don't do that. They don't do that. <laughs> no. they, they, they abstain. I do it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> okay, let's go ahead and kind of um, launch right into it. A lot of people ask me, and I'm sure you get the same questions, like, wh- why this? This, especially cases where, you know, we're involving uh, sexual or physical violence, and increasingly so, of children and a lot of people they're like how do you do it what's your drive behind it so that is my first question for you why don't we start with you brian why this work it is uniquely difficult as compared to many other cases and there are many other ways to make a living so why these cases uh yeah for me i mean i have um personal experience as a survivor of csa did this type of work when i was a prosecutor as well so i have a personal stake in helping others that have gone through something similar and um from having done it for a couple of years on the criminal side, um, I wanted to utilize the private practice to help survivors as well in any way that I could. And, you know, when I started doing this work in the, in the late 2000s, after uh, I'd left the DA's office, it was few and far between with regards to the attorneys that were involved primarily in these types of cases. And now you see all throughout the country that there's, there's people that are getting involved, which, which is great and has its upsides and has some of, its, some of its downsides. But, you know, I think that these cases are the most rewarding to have. They're also the hardest, I think, to litigate from a personal and professional standpoint. But you're, you're able to also see the people that do it for the right reasons, like Guy and like the rest of our team, like you all. It's very rewarding not just to be representing the clients, but to meet like-minded people that have the same interest in you and helping survivors at the end of the day. Yeah, I totally agree. I always tell people it comes at the highest highs and the lowest lows. Yeah, that's a good description of it. Guy, how about you? Sure. So I, I knew very early on when I went to law school that I could choose a whole host of things to do, but I had a burning desire to be a prosecutor and, and wanting to help victims and survivors of crime. And so I was able to join and the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office and sort of rise to the ranks from child sexual abuse and ultimately go to homicide. And I knew when I left there, and at some point I knew that I would have to leave there, but I wanted to continue to do the work because I agree with Brian. I mean, this is the most, I think, rewarding type of work that you can do as an attorney. But it also gives, I think, my job purpose and my, not to sound sort of, sort of very high, high brow, but it, it, it means something and it makes it worthwhile to go to work every day. So having, when I left the DA's office, the opportunity uh, to be sort of recruited by Laffy Boosie Kent to join Brian's team in the crime victims arena, so to speak, uh, it just fulfilled something that I always had a passion for 
going all the way back to law school. And I cannot, despite some very difficult days or very emotional days, I cannot envision doing any other type of legal work. I, I really can't. Yeah, I get that too. It's like once you're in it, you're in it and you're invested and you're kind of in there for the long haul, even if you're not a prosecutor anymore. And, you know, I know I'm super biased having been a former prosecutor myself, but I do think that uh, of all the attorneys, former prosecutors are the best trial attorneys just because as you know, like when you're trying a case, you got to be super prepared because something is going to go off the rails. Like every single time something happens, but if you have that preparation to lean back on, then um, you can kind of roll with the changes. But I appreciate everything that you guys have done. It's so awesome. Um, so why don't we talk a little bit about your firm? Um, Brian, you just want to tell us like what kind of stuff you guys do, because it's not just cases of childhood sexual abuse. There's like a lot of other types of things that you guys do. Sure. So our uh, crime victim department has five of us. Um, we are all former prosecutors and we run the gamut in terms of uh, crime victim cases. So those cases can involve child sexual abuse. They can involve adult sexual assault cases. They could involve human trafficking cases. They can involve inadequate security cases, premises liability for example, where somebody is, is uh, shot or there's a murder at a hotel or something along those lines. We see every single type of, of crime that can be committed and we handle the civil aspect of that. I think, and I also think having five former prosecutors, as you know, certainly helps navigate for survivors and clients throughout the entirety of, of their process, which as we know, there's often on oftentimes a, an ongoing criminal case where, you know, they're, they're not looking to you just to file a civil lawsuit on their behalf. You, you have to be able to represent the survivor from many different facets, including being an advocate for them in the criminal aspect of things. If there are other issues like family law issues that may be happening, whatever those may be in human trafficking cases where your client may have a, have a, have a criminal background or been arrested as a result of being trafficked. Um, whatever the case may be, you just have to be able to handle all of those different facets and be a voice for the client. And I think having the five of us with both criminal experience and um, civil experience and only handling these types of cases as, as both has been a good result for, I think, our clients at the end of the day. Yeah, that's really interesting. I know that what Conan Lown, why they brought me on, I think is kind of modeled after what you guys do. And um, you saw so much success in having former prosecutors come on the team. And I think that's a really important point and something that sets you guys apart from everybody else, because it is that knowledge of the criminal justice system, but it's also the relationships because your um, team has those relationships with people who are still district attorneys or um, the law enforcement officers and things like that. And I really think that aids us so much more on the civil side than people who don't have those relationships or that knowledge. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, and a guy can attest to this, that just like victims or survivors, cops and prosecutors uh, don't, they, they want to talk to somebody that they trust. And if they have a survivor or victim who they think needs or would like to speak to a civil attorney, just that, like they do with, with you all, I'm sure, Shauna Stay, is they know that the criminal case is going to be preserved. And not only is the criminal case going to be preserved, but whatever we do in terms of the civil investigation or the civil case will hopefully benefit the criminal case if there is an ongoing criminal case. Yeah, so important. When I know when I was in prosecutor, I don't know if you guys are the same way. If I got a call from the civil attorney, I was like, okay, yeah, no. Totally. And now, yep. since we all have those relationships, we're like, oh, they're one of us, so they get it, and they're gonna, you know, they're not gonna do anything to uh, screw my case up, and that goes a really long way. So let's go ahead and segue into the reason, like you guys have so many different cool things that you've done, and so many different cases that I could have brought you on to ask you about, but. We're going to talk today primarily about the Miracle Meadows case. Do one of you just want to kind of take us through what that is, or what Miracle Meadows was, talk about the awful things that happened in there and how you guys became involved with it? Yeah, uh, sure. So, me, me, I mean, Brian can talk more about how we initially got involved with it, but from an overview perspective, Miracle Meadows, and I'll speak as to what it was intended or supposed to be, it was founded in 19... 1988 in 
a place called Salem, West Virginia, a remote location in the woods and mountains of West Virginia. They call it a holler, completely removed essentially from society. There's no other way to say it. And I think ultimately that was beyond purposeful. It was supposed to serve at-risk youth who were part of the community, a Christian-based community within the uh, Seventh-day Adventist community. Now, the Seventh-day Adventist National Church has maintained that they have no affiliation with this particular facility, but the owners and founders were Seventh-day Adventist, and 95% of the children who attended were Seventh-day Adventist. They were supposed to help children who had behavioral issues primarily. Some of their advertising, in fact, sort of outrageously, describe them being able to cure mental health conditions, whether that be something as, I don't want to call this simple, but as simple as ADHD to as extreme as psychiatric issues like bipolar and schizophrenia, which is absurdity to say the least. The way they would do that is they didn't believe in medication. So if a child presented with their necessary bipolar or uh, schizophrenia medication, the child without medical supervision would be immediately removed, not weaned off, but removed from their necessary psychiatric medication. And anyone who works in that in the arena or field or knows anything about psychiatry, if someone has been on antipsychotics, you cannot just, for lack of a better term, cold turkey, remove the child or anyone for that matter from that medication. From there, the case that uh, I, I, so I, I said this to you a little bit before we started, in all of my cases, this was absolutely the most horrific and by far worst case I've ever seen. And that's including homicides. And I, I've never had a case where you had to view it in a way where at times the child's sexual abuse that occurred potentially wasn't the worst thing that was happening to these children. And I know that sounds sort of insane to say, but uh, there was this one practice they had which they called quarantine. Uh, and what it was, was a solitary confinement cell, no windows, the doors locked from the outside, five by eight room. Uh, half the times the child would have no mattress and would have to sleep on a concrete floor. The child would be stripped of his or her clothing because this was a boy and girl boarding school. So you have a child sleeping in a room with no clock, no window, no furniture, naked on a concrete floor with a Folgers or some form of coffee can to both urinate and defecate in. And the child would be kept in that room anywhere from days to weeks, some for as long as four consecutive months with no human contact. And so, you know, some of the children who had both been placed in quarantine for those months and sexually assaulted, oftentimes describe the quarantine as way worse. Like that, you know, it's, it sounds sort of strange to say, like if I had to choose, you know, sort of a Sophie's choice, uh, I did not want to be in quarantine. It was the most horrific experience. But of course, uh, as I've indicated, the school also, I'm, I'm, I'm calling the school very sort of, you know, I'm putting air quotes around school. The children were physically abused to the point of having broken bones, jaws, scars, um, and they were sexually abused repeatedly. And the school was able to get away with it for nearly 30 years, despite investigation after investigation and the reason that the authorities could not shut the facility down or really get evidence is because what would happen is when a child, if they had the courage, and I don't mean to say that if a child didn't report, they don't have courage, but you know, if they had that courage to come forward, what the school would do is they would ship the employee back to the foreign country in which they came because the school catered to bringing in individuals from foreign nations to supervise these children with no background checks. And they would ship the adult back to their home country and they would ship the child back to their home state. And then days or weeks later, they would call the authorities in violation of the mandatory reporting laws. And by the time the police showed up, there's no survivor, no victim and no perpetrator. And so oftentimes the authorities' hands were tied. I mean, I could, I could go on for hours, but sort of that's a, <laughs> that is a very, very, very uh, sort of 3000 foot view of this facility. So we're talking about children as young as like six years old, all the way up through 17. Is that right? Seven to 17. Yes. Okay. And so you're essentially, they're putting kids in the hole, so to speak, like what we would call in prison, the hole, which, you know, if you watch any documentaries at all, people talk about grown adults who say that is the most awful thing they've ever been through in their life. And they're, they're, they're doing this to small children. It, honestly, this, what you've told me so far about the makeup of this, as you say, school, it's a pedophile's dream because you're taking oh, kids who are already at risk 
youth who maybe nobody's going to believe them anyway because they do have whatever if, if it's a psychological issue a behavioral issue or whatever and then um you know as the three of us know more than any everybody else like a normal person on the street like that these are the types of kids typically an abuser is going to target so um will you tell me a little bit about who was the director of the school and how that plays into any of this yeah, her name was Gail Clark, and she founded the school, like I said, in 1988, and she had uh, a very specific way right from the beginning because the abuse, as it's unbelievable, the abuse happened within the first year. So this isn't like it developed into an ab abusive facility. We have individuals, unfortunately, who are outside the statute of limitations who were, let's call them the first class, right, the first group of children who attended what Gail Clark and her administrators who changed pretty rapidly throughout the years would do from an, on, an onset is when you brought your child to the facility as a, supposed to be help, they would tell the parents up front. So before they even knew who the child was, listen, this is what your child is going to say at some point during their stay. They're going to say that they were sexually abused. They're going to say that they were placed in this isolation room. They're going to say that they were beaten, that they were made to work eight to 10 hours a day in the field. They are going to say that we call them racial slurs. The reason we're saying all this is because we've heard it. And this is what, unfortunately, kids with behavioral health issues say. So they're preempting any child who would, in fact, report. And the other sort of fail safe that they put in place to protect against reporting, among others, is all of the phone calls. The children were allowed one phone call a week for 30 minutes only to their parents. Every single phone call was monitored by a staff member. And if the child began to speak about abuses, the phone call would be intercepted and they would say, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, obviously I'm making that last name up. Mr. and Mrs. Smith, remember we told you when you first checked in little Johnny, he was going to lie to you about all these things. Now here's the time. And the parents would go, oh my God, you're right. You did tell us that. And and then the parents would believe the facility. And so not only that, there was actual documents that were kept and, and formulated by the school that specifically say under only the most dire of circumstances, meaning if only if a child essentially is going to die imminently, can you take the child to any doctor's office? Because, and they actually put the because. The because is that doctors are mandatory reporters. And so they, I mean, they, they did everything that they possibly could to ensure that these children could be abused, every form of abuse you could imagine, you know, with impunity. I hate to say it, but it, I mean, they were really good at it. It sounds like they thought through every oh. um, one of these scenarios and had those fail, those um, fail proof ways to do it so that they knew that they could continue to get it. I mean, clearly because it went on for so for 30 years. So you said it went on that long. Do we know when the first actual um, allegation of abuse was? Was it all the way back in 88, 89? So the first, you, you mean in terms of allegation to anyone of, in an authority position? Yes. Yeah, that was 1994. So four children escaped the facility in 1994. And I mean, this is significant uh, to bring up and not to make it about race, but it, it is significant to this regard. And we had testimony in this by the West Virginia State Police, who were amazing and, and great allies in this case in terms of presenting the evidence when we deposed them, they indicated, and they were clear about this, Salem, West Virginia is not 99.9% .9 white. It is 100% white. And 95 or 90 plus percent of the children there were people of color. And so the, imagine being a, a child of color who was most of which were from the West Coast being implanted in Salem, West Virginia, running through the woods and mountains of an all-white area back in the 90s. I mean, this was beyond scary for them and in coming into contact with law enforcement, right? And so in 1994, four children, two, two boys, two girls did escape. And they reported when they were picked up by the police that they were being both physically and sexually abused. Now, the West Virginia authorities immediately launched an investigation. More allegations came out. Um, that investigation sort of based on what I told you about earlier, sort of fell apart. And then it resurfaced in 1999. And in 1999, all of the children were removed from the facility by the Child Protective Services, which is DHHR in West Virginia. But the school had such a grasp on those parents that the school and Gail Clark had the parents 
force their children to recant their allegations of physical and sexual abuse. And the judge in that particular case, I mean, you have essentially no perpetrators, no physical evidence because of the school's sort of how they managed it. And you have a recantation from all of the children. So unbelievably, but in some way, understandably, I say that I'm a little hesitant to even say it that way, but the children were allowed to go back to Miracle Meadows and Miracle Meadows was allowed to continue doing what they were doing. I can't imagine the punishment, so to speak, that they probably faced after getting back there because they're already in, in quarantine conditions. Uh, more quarantine. Did she ever face any kind of criminal consequences for her actions and her lack of actions? Yeah. Uh, yes. I, and I, I say yes, because it's, it, it's not enough, but she was ultimately arrested in 2014. And we can get into how that came up, came about that August of 2014, West Virginia uh, used all of their resources. And it was a, it was a commendable effort on their part to shut this facility down. It was West Virginia state police, sheriff's department, local police, uh, DHHR, the prosecutor's office. I mean, this was a full court press and ultimately, Gal Clark was arrested and charged with a whole host of crimes. Uh, she ultimately pled guilty to uh, child abuse, to failure to report an obstruction of justice, and ultimately was sentenced to six year, excuse me, six months of incarceration and five years of probation. So when I say yes, she faced punishment, and I sort of made a face. I know no one can see that on a podcast, <laughs> but I made a face because obviously, if you've abused or allowed abuse of children to occur, including sexual abuse uh, of its hot, you know, a most perverse kind for 30 years, uh, six months in jail and five years probation is, is woefully inadequate to say, say the least. So what she actually ended up being charged with, it was just for like a specific period of time, like right there in 2014, right? It wasn't even all of the things that had been going on for a multitude of reasons, I'm guessing, not least of which is statute of limitations issues, but also probably witness issues dating back that far would be my guess. Um, I don't, I think, we, you know, prosecutors get a lot of crap in the press. A lot of the time people don't think things are, um, you know, handled the way they should be. And certainly it's not justice, but I think people fail to understand those obstacles that prosecutors are up against in terms of the laws that don't favor victims. And additionally, how difficult it is to put something together that is that far back. Oh yeah. I don't, I don't fault for a second, either the prosecutor's office or the West Virginia State Police or the Sheriff's Department, it truly, I, but for them, I, I truly believe this facility would still be running. Yeah, and I think in addition to that, I mean, these these kids were sent after this after the school was raided. These kids were sent all over the country, and you know, they, uh, as Guy can attest to, many of the parents were not in favor of allowing them to pursue something criminal or civilly when we, we even had the lawsuit. So you're already dealing as a prosecutor or an investigative officer with a, a bad uh, set of cards because you have so much, besides the evidence aspect, you have so many other factors that are weighing against you with regards to being able to proceed. So it's so incredibly difficult. And Going back to what you guys have talked about a couple of times here, the parents still being in support of her. I read online that she had tons of supporters at her sentencing hearing and that one person, I, I wrote this down because I was so appalled by it. A letter from one of her supporters at her sentencing said, this was not a horrendous leader of a dysfunctional fanatical school that mistreats kids. And I'm like, well, actually, that's exactly what this was. Exactly what it was. You know, you should, you should see when I, I deposed her three times, uh, three separate times and for eight hours each time she, her testimony is some of the most vile testimony and flippant testimony that I've ever seen. I mean, when going through the allegations, I don't even want to call them allegations because it's, it happened, uh, going through the abuse that occurred, she said a comment to the effect of, well, in all my years, you have 29 clients. And in all of my years, that's not that bad. That's not that many. Like, as if to say, like, you know, there's a certain number of kids you're allowed to abuse if you have a facility like this. Absolutely disgusting. It's just crazy. And this, I think that this is like, obviously, one of the worst that um, anyone has seen. But 
it is so common for people around these perpetrators or someone like her, who's a physical abuser, maybe not necessarily a sexual abuser, but very clearly has a level of culpability because she's responsible for those kids and she knows it's going on and they still support them. I went to a sentencing earlier this year where a man molested a little boy. He had pictures of him on his phone. It was an autistic child. It was like a disgusting case and he pled guilty. He literally said, I did it. And he had multiple people support him at his sentencing. And one person was even like, I don't care what you say. I'll never believe this was sexual. I'm like, he literally just freaking said yeah. that it was. And they, it just doesn't. It's, it's so fascinating. You say that because Brian co commented on this just a couple minutes ago, but you know, of the 29 plaintiffs that we had in this case, uh, I would say about 24 do not have relationships with their parents. Some do, but it's very tenuous. And some of the parents calls has call have called me throughout the years of litigating this case, sort of to lambast me and say, how dare, you know, this is, these are lies. This is, and I said, would you like me to send you the evidence? Well, quarantine was never a thing. I can show you the document that was created by Miracle Meadows that literally outlines what quarantine is and corroborates everything your child has said. Do you want me to send that to you? I won't believe it. You're not going to believe the document that is from the facility who created the quarantine. I can send you pictures of the quarantine rooms. I can send you pictures of the coffee cans that the police recovered, not to be disgusting, but with urination and defecation still in them. Yeah. And, they, and they, they wouldn't believe it. We, we, had, we had kids in the very beginning that we wanted up not representing who we're in communication with because their parents shut it down. Oh my God. So, you know, they, uh, I don't know where they are or what they're doing anymore, but we would be constantly trying to reach back out after the initial communication. And then I remember one kid's mom answered the phone and just said, don't call here again. So it's cult like, is what it. Oh, 100%. 100%. Which from the diet to the way they behave to, to every, I mean, every aspect of the life is controlled very much like a cult. We could go into that with some of the other stuff because I know you guys have Scientology-based uh, litigation too. I think it's ongoing, so I'm obviously not going to get too far into it, but maybe someday we'll have a discussion about that too. In one, one other thing that keeps striking me is some of these nuances around me so much of the human trafficking world in terms of moving victims around so you can't get to them and moving perpetrators around too is interesting to me. So these perpetrators that they are bringing in from other countries to be teachers, so to speak, was it the same countries that they were coming from? Or is it kind of all over the place? And how did they come into contact with these people? Was it through the church? Yeah, so they were all from very similar countries. So uh, there were a country, quite frankly, that I, I just never heard of, but uh, called Tonga was a big source for them. A lot of African countries, Turks and Caicos, there was a lot of island countries that also would send, I would say there's about 10 or 11 different countries that were sort of a feeding ground for Miracle Meadows. And they were able to get a religious visa because of their affiliation with the church and ultimately be able to come here to do a ministry, right? I mean, I think that's how they were able to come here, come to this facility and work as a part of their ministry under this religious visa. And the facility, you know, Gal Clark, it was approximately $3,000 per month per child to send to go here. Yeah. And the on in their, let's call it their heyday, they had 50 children, you know, so they're making $150,000 a month, right? The children, not exaggerating, were fed 80% of their meals were rice and beans, which cost virtually nothing when you're talking about $150,000. The staff members were given a stipend of $600 a month, which we've never been able to figure out. I mean, we can make our guesses, but where did all that money go? 1.5, 1.6 million, which does not include the donations that were given, doesn't include the founders of all different organizations who would send checks of 50,000, 250,000, all sorts of money was flowing through the school and it was a dilapidated property. It could have been beautiful, quite frankly. I mean, this was, despite it being so in such isolation, it could have been a beautiful, well-ran and truly meeting the goals that were originally indicated that it was intended to be. Uh, and this could have been a good facility for that, but that didn't happen in 1988 and it didn't happen through 2014. It's, it's really unreal. Like they're getting rich off of abusing children. <laughs> That's what it sounds like to me. That's crazy. And 
I think it this case is such a lesson in how these how easy it is for a facility like this to perpetrate these kind of crimes. And it reminds me too of Timberline Knowles that we both your firm and our firm have cases up in the Chicago area where um, you know this is like a celebrity rehab facility and the stuff that I keep hearing about what was going on in there is a freaking circus. It's just so darn easy for these people to do these things to these kids because they're high risk in the first place. It's it's just insane what goes on behind closed doors. So real quick, we'll get out of the facts here in a second. Was it, because I know it was difficult and the reason they were able to get away with it so long is by moving everybody around. Did anybody else ever get criminally prosecuted besides Gail? There was someone by the name of Timothy Arrington who was a especially vile abuser, both sexually and physically, who was there from 2012 to 2014. The children's testimony has been everything from anal rape to, because he preferred to sexually assault and abuse young boys. And so it was everything from anal rape to physical abuse, including handcuffs, torture, beatings. Oftentimes we had testimony that he would tell the child that you no longer have God in you. So I'm going to place him in you. And that's how he would do that. And he would anally rape the child and said, I'm putting God inside of you, which besides, I mean, all of the traumatic and damages that result in injuries as, as a part of that sexual, that perverse sexual assault. Now you have these children who also were raised pretty religiously. And now they have, they, none of them have their faith anymore either, which a lot of them actually said is it really bothers them. It re- I mean, you would, you would, people think you, that maybe that shouldn't, but to them, it really does, you know, because they're like, how can I believe in a God that allowed this man to do this to me? Right. How can I believe in something or someone that, created this facility, right? Because that's what they were taught to believe. And so he was arrested, uh, not for the sexual abuse, but he was arrested for literally choking three, two of our clients out to the point of unconsciousness. Ultimately, those charges were dropped, or they didn't really get dropped, they were just in abeyance. And and that was largely due and Brian commented on this, uh, the, the children being removed from West Virginia, the parents not cooperating. And we all know this as as prosecutors, if you don't have a victim or a witness, how are you supposed to prosecute the case? And they didn't. The prosecutors did not have a witness. Um, but when those children became young adults and contacted us, we were able to bring a civil case. And that's what, how we were able to get justice for those those young men, now young men. Thankfully. Oh, my gosh. Um, I just, you know... It's like I always tell people, just when you think you've seen it all, then something else locks in the door and you're like, okay, that's a new one. And this is by far the most horrendous thing that I've ever heard of and been doing this for quite a while. So let's um, go ahead and talk a little bit more about the civil litigation then. Brian, you want to tell us how you guys even came to be involved in this case in the first place? Sure. So first and foremost, my partner, Paul Busey, was born and raised in West Virginia um, practice down there before he married a Philly girl and moved up here. Um, but Paul's been in, involved in a bunch of assault and abuse cases as well. And I connected with a colleague, friend of ours, Peter Jancy of Crew Jancy out in Portland, Oregon. And Peter had been contacted by um, one individual out there with regards to a potential claim. And Peter's been involved in some cases against the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So he connected with us because of our West Virginia practice. And we met with, spoke with the client, the potential client originally. And at that point, we really didn't know, you know, where things were going to go because we only had this one potential client that was alleging some horrific stuff that we couldn't even believe was happening. Not that we disbelieve the client. We just couldn't believe that, you know, this school was able to operate for as long as it it did over, you know, about 20, 20 some years. So, you know, I mentioned how the attorneys that handle these cases primarily and, and the network and relationships that exist, but Peter's is, you know, just like you all and just like, just us primarily handles this, does it for the right reasons, knows how to work with trauma victims and survivors. After we had met with, um, so, so the, those relationships are obviously very fruitful because of the national network of attorneys that do this type of work and getting survivors in the right hands. So we took what we had with that one client, 
who connected us with another um, who had siblings that went to the school as well that we connected with. And then things sort of spiraled from there on out. People started talking. There was some, I know there was a reporter from the, it was the Washington Post who, when we first filed the, the first lawsuit, which was only on behalf of two of the survivors, the Washington Post ran an article. And I remember one of the defendants who was also the board uh, chair had made a comment about, well, how these kids are basically bred to lie or something along those lines. I can't remember the exact wording, but, you know, little did we know at that point what was going to unravel with regards to the evidence that we were going to find, but things just snowballed and snowballed, not just with the amount of victims and survivors that came forward, but also former employees that came forward, the documented, I mean, the documentation that guy was able to unearth and discovery was so damning for them. And then their own words. I mean, they, they couldn't run from what was happening down there. And, you know, it's, it's crazy to look back and, and remember exactly having that initial call with Pete, Peter about where this may go. And both of us saying, look, it sounds just kind of crazy, but that's how a lot of these cases go. It just takes, you know, one attorney believing the survivor and running with it. And this is a perfect example of what can happen. That's awesome. I think that really helps to highlight the importance of these collaborations because then you're getting lawyers who are really fantastic and talented from all over the country able to go to one state where maybe you don't normally, like I know you guys do, but maybe you don't normally practice, but we're able to all work together and um, get something done for these victims, which is so important. And it's yeah, not, I just, you're fine. No, I was gonna say, no, just to follow up on that collaboration. Yeah, we, you know, Brian Paul being from West Virginia, we were able to go down there and litigate this case in large part because of the collaboration we had built down there with uh, two firms that were we worked as a team and that you know that was forbes law and jesse forbes was sort of my my partner in crime down there so to speak uh, he was at every deposition with me and we had scott long guy boosie which is paul's to head and ashley lynch from henderson and long all working as a team and, and it really having everyone sort of in place brian paul the other guy <laughs> two guys in the case jesse and scott and ashley was instrumental and and it really really helped and if we're talking about collaboration i absolutely have to give a lot of credit to our paralegal uh, joseph kerr who worked amazingly not just on the background of the case and getting the filings done and with along with the, the Kim Diller down in, in Henderson and Long. But Joseph worked with these clients day in and day out, and he's still text messaging and calling and and he has been instrumental in being there for for these clients who who not just had injuries back then, but a lot of them are really, really struggling in life today. And they need a lot of help and a lot of assistance. And so uh, the team as a whole really came together and I think put together a, a, a wonderful sort of collaborative effort that allowed for a litigation and support for each of these clients, which was crucial in this case. Yeah. And I think, you know, Guy just highlighted it a little bit, but having trauma informed practices is so important in handling these types of cases. So, you know, having Jesse Forbes firm, having Scott Long, having all of our folks on our team who have experienced and working with trauma victims and are trained to do so. I mean, it's just such an important aspect of being, of handling these types of cases. So you're starting to see a lot of these mass tort firms and, and firms of that nature that are, are getting into the mix of these cases, which, you know, it's great that it's, it's bringing more uh, visibility to the problem, but it, it also, it, when you're talking about human beings and them being turned into a mass tort, when it really requires personal trauma-informed interaction on, a, 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 I don't know how many times Guy and Joseph talked to the clients, you know, on a daily basis, but it was, it was a lot. So it, it just highlights the importance of having that type of practice for these types of cases. And Brian, to follow up on that, just to give, I mean, in this case is a perfect ex example, you know, having the, the model of having a mass tort where a client is a number, essentially, it doesn't work. And, and here's why it doesn't work. And this is anecdotal, I suppose, but this is emblematic of this entire case over four years. 
for Survivors is sponsored by the law firm Cohen & Malad. Cohen & Malad attorneys have over two decades of experience helping sexual abuse survivors. We work through the civil court process to get justice and compensation that can help pay for resources needed to heal from your trauma and move forward. We are proud of the work we do in giving power to your voice. And now, back to our show. One of our clients whose name obviously I can't give because of confidentiality, it was three o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, I guess morning, or I guess technically Sunday morning, my phone is ringing off the hook at 3 a.m. And I answer and it's one of our clients who is describing to me that she is going to take her life. And she, she just wanted to let me know that it had nothing to do with us. And she was, I mean, like, this is what she was thinking about literally before she took her life, that she didn't want to let me down, but she couldn't go forward anymore. So three o'clock in the morning, I am like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> like hang tight. Like, all right, let's talk about this. Meanwhile, like I'm on the computer, like trying to wake up, mobilizing. Uh, California has a great, um, you can send out a mobile unit, a crisis unit to someone's home. And, and so we did that. We were able to intervene. But, you know, if this was at a firm who wasn't trauma-informed, who doesn't give out cell phone numbers, who works nine to five, I mean, they don't work nine to five, but really they only answer phone calls nine to five. I, I don't know what it would have happened. And it would have, I don't think it would have crushed me. I know because in this case, one of our clients did take his own life during the litigation. And he was a, a, just a, a really sweet young man. He was the only client that I did not personally meet. I had spoken to multiple times on the phone, but Brian did meet him and, and, and I'm getting teared up, but he was, um, when he, when he took his life, it was, it was really hard. I think that and I really appreciate you guys pointing out the importance of the trauma-informed practices. I preach about it all the time. And I think that for some people it just kind of goes in one ear and one out the other. And you've got, um, I've heard lots of horror stories. And I've experienced some clients telling me some things that they heard from other lawyers and they were trying to figure out what they're going to do that I was absolutely disgusted by. And, you know, I'm not even saying that the lawyers had bad intentions. I think they had good intentions, but the way in which they posed the questions were absolutely, you know, at best offensive at worst, absolutely re-traumatizing. Re and you've got a case like this where I don't think people understand these, that these clients are different than any other client because when you've been through something like this, it's not like if you're in an automobile accident and maybe you do have some physical injuries and it does affect you, but this affects your entire life. And if, yeah. you, if this happened when you were a child, this affects everything going forward for the rest of your life. And you have to act accordingly as their lawyer. And you know, I'm so glad that she had your cell phone number. My clients all have my cell phone number. I don't think that that's normal for a lot of attorneys, but if you're going to do this kind of work, you really have to commit to it because you have to be there for those people because they are going through, like the litigation is so difficult on them. And um, I'm really glad that we're pointing out the, um, the difficulty of that and, and what goes along with it. Did you, I, I had in my notes, one of the things I wanted to ask you, it, did you have any interactions with survivors that stand out to you? I think that you just answered that question. That one certainly seems out. Is there anything else that happened during the pendency of the litigation during discovery, depositions, interrogatories, that sort of thing, that any like aha moments or anything like that, or something that meant a little bit more to you, either of you? Do you want to go first? Uh, yeah, that's fine. I think that the key to the success of this case was ultimately the decision to depose all of our own clients and guys flawless execution of that i mean that is such a novel approach to a case and i don't know many people that have done it before but and i know guy and jesse just presented for national crime victims bar association on this but that to me in being able to control the dialogue in a way that will give the survivor confidence and assertion that they're believed and uh, the ability to confront whatever is going to come at them on cross-examination thereafter. For me personally, I think that that was, that's what I look at. I mean, besides the survivor, besides the survivors themselves, I mean, Every case is about them, right? And it's about telling them their story. And there's definitely a, a couple that, you know, like I, I think about that I start to smile about for sure. But, you know, I think for as successful as this case was, the, 
the most rewarding aspect of it was the fact that these kids never had a chance, right? They, a lot of them came up and were adopted into these families from abusive and neglectful situations. And then even after their adoption, they were oftentimes in, in, in some sort of neglectful or abusive situation, only be shipped, to be shipped down to this hellhole where they were just tortured and abused thereafter. So they never had a, a, an opportunity. I think the, that giving them the opportunity, we can't control what they're gonna do with it, but giving them that opportunity that they never had, even though they did it themselves, but helping them do that was uh, extremely rewarding. That's what I sort of walk away with um, in terms of the highlight from the case. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah, so the relationship, and in large part, I've traveled the country uh, more times than my, my, my life partner would probably have cared me to do. But I, I mean, I have been in, my goodness, uh, I spent over 400 nights in Charleston, West Virginia. I was in San Francisco, uh, Portland, uh, you sort of name areas. I was there with the clients for a whole host of reasons, whether it was to meet with experts or to prep them or sort of be with them through different um, IMEs that they had to go through. So I mean, I know these clients inside and out and that we've spent a lot of time together and, and some of which uh, one client in particular, when we were discussing, all right, the case is finalized and we're working through what that means for this particular client. And she said, but like, w- what happens? And I'm like, well, I, I told, I just explained to you, we're going to go. She's like, no, no, no. But like with you and I, and I'm like, well, what do you mean? She's like, like, I know you're like my lawyer, but I think we're friends. And I'm like, no, we definitely have, we definitely have built a relationship and she's like, is it like cool if I call you sometimes? And I'm like, yeah. And she actually wants to start. She's a really good cook and she wants to start on a restaurant. I said, well, you better when you open it, uh, have us out at your uh, restaurant opening, especially because it's going to be in California, but you can have us out at your restaurant. And I do want to be there. And, and you know, Brian and I have had cases, uh, some of which Brian was instrumental on that I came in the back end of. We have had clients who have done amazing things after sort of resolution. And it's real it's it's the most rewarding thing. You know, Brian and I just went to a a sort of a recovery house that one of our clients, unrelated to this case, but just as it's emblematic. And I really envision this happening in this case uh, for women who are, you know, recovering from addiction issues. And and you know, that's what he used as a portion of his resolution from his sexual abuse case. And so the point though is that it's really rewarding seeing how despite what happened to these children at the time and how difficult their lives have been, how when they see someone actually believing in them and trusting them and working with them and not treating them um, like a, like a piece of shit. I mean, I don't don't mean not to curse, but that's how they've been treated their entire lives, you know? And it's how they change as a result of seeing like, no, you know, if you find the right person and you find the right group who can sort of give hope to these individuals and then also you know on to provide them with some financial stability mm-hmm. that they can start their life anew and and get a life that they should have been afforded when they were a child that was stolen from them and so when we see that especially in the back end uh it 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 remind even if i don't i don't need to thank you seeing that seeing someone open a recovery house, open a restaurant that becomes successful, seeing them do things with it at the end of the day and turning their lives around uh, is brings a smile to my face and, and makes every bit of this worth it. Yeah. I, I gotta, I gotta mention that, you know, the other rewarding aspect of this was guy came into this as a baby in civil litigation, like literally from the DA's office. And I was taught in my old firm, that the only way that you learn how to do this type of work is to be thrown into the fire. Now, most people wouldn't be thrown into a, the fire of a 27, uh, ultimately 29 plaintiff case out of state with the client and personal issues involved in representing these people, um, as, as well as the complexities of dealing with, uh, you know, a, a national church, uh, lower level entities and um, a school and a religion that we didn't have really any prior experience with. And then seeing that go from A to Z and the growth of Guy in that process and the, just such a force in these types of cases was, was extremely rewarding as well. 
but it, again, I just always hark back to if, if your heart's in it, you're going to get good results at the end of the day, if you're doing it for the right reasons. And, you know, I think that's shown through with everybody involved, involved in this case. I think that's a really important point. If your motivation is there and, and for all the right reasons, then you're going to do okay. So let's talk about that. Will you just tell us a little bit about um, what the final disposition of the case was? Yeah. So overall, so there was a whole multitude of defendants because, you know, as when you start a litigation, you don't actually know who is necessarily other than the actual facility, who really is culpable for this. So there was, I think we, we sued 15 entities uh, ultimately, but at the end of the day, uh, the resolution globally was $52 million. And Whoa. so, yeah, <laughs> and you know, it, it's, it's very interesting. We I look back and, and when we were first discussing this, there was a whole host of, cause you have to do, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, we, we do this for the right reasons, but at the end of the day, we do have to do a, a cost analysis, not just for the case, but for the clients as well. Like how much resources do we put into it? Not to say we shortchange a case, but we have to be realistic because if there is a recovery, we don't want to completely wipe out a client's recovery, right? And so when we were discussing, you know, what could this resolve for, you know, 52 million was, was a really great day in terms of what this can do for these clients. I mean, this is not a little bit of money for these clients. I mean, this is money if, if structured right or invested properly can truly last them for the rest of their lives and give them a stability that they've never had and not from a fault of their own, that's for sure. And so it, it was, uh, I think, well, Brian can talk too about the resolution, but it was a, it was, it felt really good. And again, I don't, it's not because of the number, it's because of what that can do for these clients. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I got, when we were taking the elevator up, we, we had the, uh, when we resolved the case, we we're staying in West Virginia. We're doing things at a, at a hotel down there due to COVID issues. And guy like looked to me, wondering whether I was upset with regards to the result. And it, and it's not. It, I wasn't upset, but I, I tr and I really truly mean this. Like I, I, the 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 number that a case settles for is great, but ultimately it's like the impact of what you're doing. And, you know, I think that was settling in for me. Like we legitimately, and I told God, it's like legitimately we're helping to change the lives of 29 people. And that was really for me in terms of the resolution, like that was sinking in because I don't think we've done it on a level like that before. So we've done it for individuals and things of that nature and a couple of people. And I'm sure if you stack everybody, you know, up that we've represented in the past decade, but the enormity of that was very humbling. So that was, that was pretty cool. I think Brian, I've never seen it before. Just for Brian's <laughs> face the whole time. I'm like, I'm, I remember for like the hours of sitting in mediation, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm Italian and I get hot tempered and I'm like, I'm like losing my mind in, in the mediation and uh, Brian's stoic and, but, and I'm used to that, but there was a different he had a different look to him. And I'm like, I don't know if he's pissed at me. I don't know if he's happy, if he's sad, if what's going on. And that, that was, uh, that absolutely was, uh, I finally was like, yeah, exactly right. In the elevator. So what's, uh, are you, I need to, I need to get inside that head and figure out what's going on. Yeah. I mean, it's because it's just, a, you know, when you settle these cases, like it's great to settle them for a mo big monetary amount, right. You know, like you're going to do well, the client's going to do all that stuff, but the the like guy talked about it like seeing things happen with our clients after the fact and using money to help other people and you know like my reaction when we settled the case i was extremely uh happy proud of guy of the firm and everything that happened and, but more it was just along the lines of like understanding the enormity of what we were able to do mostly guy was able to do for these kids and in affecting their lives on a substantive level is a little overwhelming so we'll have a chance to celebrate like legitimately um but that time it's just a weird you know it's weird like you're 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 selling for a big number and getting a lot of money and then like you want to celebrate and all that stuff and then you remember like 
what these kids had to go through and the horror of, of this whole entity. And, you know, you're changing these kids a lot. It's like a it's crazy mix of emotions all at once. So, yeah. I think that's I, was, I felt much better after a couple of drinks at dinner. That <laughs> uh, that's so awesome. I mean, and I appreciate you saying that because again, it's not, you're right. It's not about the money. It's about doing something for these survivors. And, you know, you may have been the first people who ever gave a damn and actually listened to them and believed them. And I think that that goes just as far as the, the money goes sometimes, maybe not in this case, because I think you guys are being a little bit modest. I'm pretty sure that was the biggest settlement in the history of West Virginia. So um, you guys yeah, done you good. Understand. okay so we're gonna wrap up here starting with you brian do you guys have any parting words for listeners you know whether it be about this case or just about the work we do in general that you think that people uh, need to hear or could find useful no i I mean from my perspective i think stay victim centric and never forget that it's all about the survivors that you're working with and whether that be the process whether that be the result and i will say this we had a very, very informed, caring judge. And I've been in cases where you have to deal with very uninformed judges that don't understand the impact of trauma. They don't understand child abuse. They don't understand a lot of things surrounding that issue. And I don't fault the judges for being uneducated about it. They're just not well-informed. But the difference when you have a judge, not only who's, who's fair, but also extremely well-informed about the topic, it makes it just so much easier in terms of doing what your job would be in any other case, just like a construction case, like, okay, I get it. There was a failure of X or whatever it may be. If you already have a judge that's, that's very well informed on the complexities of a sexual abuse case, child sexual abuse case, it just makes it so much better for the survivors at the end of the day. And like one of the things that we try to do is, is educate judges from the very get-go. We try to educate them through trainings and things of that nature, because still to this day, I think, I think not only judges, but the general public are just not well informed about the issues. So true. Yeah, I would, I mean, certainly echo all of that. And and I, for the survivors who will listen to this, uh, who are deciding whether or not to come forward, whoever you choose, if you choose to come forward and you choose to hire a law firm, whoever that firm may be, the only thing I would say is it's, and we've talked about it sort of throughout, but it's really important that you choose a firm, as we all said, that is trauma-informed and that does not moonlight in child abuse or adult sexual abuse, right? This is not, and this is not a disparaging comment, but you don't want a lawyer who primarily does slip and falls or car accident cases who's going to moonlight in abuse cases. Make sure it's such an important relationship you're going to have. And that's, it really, it's a relationship you're going to have with that attorney, an appropriate one, but a relationship. And just, I, I, I just implore whatever firm or whatever lawyer you choose to engage just make sure that this is what they dedicate their practice to, and it's not something they're moonlighting in. And so uh, to any survivor who's listening, I, I'm, you know, there are a lot of attorneys out there who, who do do that. And I just hope that you find, uh, whether it's us, whether it's Johnsonette, whether it's anyone else in the community, just make sure you look for someone like that. And uh, thanks for listening. A really important point. And thank you guys so much for being here. I really do appreciate it. Um, taking the time to educate people on what you did here because it is important. And it's, I think it's going to be legendary. <laughs> Certainly. I mean, people are talking about it all across the country and thank you just for, you know, doing what you do on a daily basis because you, you choose to do it. You don't have to do it. And what you do for people is so important and it helps so much. And in this case in particular, this was the justice for these victims. They didn't get what they deserved in the criminal court period and not by the fault of law enforcement or prosecutors, but it wasn't gonna happen, they didn't get it. And they got it because you guys pressed on. And it's so, so, so important. And you know, you hear a lot of people talking about how it's just for the money and it's all about money and it's just not. It's holding offenders accountable, making sure that they can't continue to do it and serving justice for these survivors. Thank you. 
Brian, Guy, thank you so much again for taking the time to be here. I truly appreciate your dedication to your community and your drive to help protect kids. I am proud to call you colleagues, and I am excited for the day when we can all be in the same room together again. And thank you to our listeners. Please continue to tune in and share this podcast with others. Please submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.